You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 159, for the 13th of March, 2019. I'm your host, Stephen Wagner. Chris Webster couldn't join us today. On today's show, we're talking with Lewis Bork about his article, Constructing the Future History, and how it applies to CRM Archaeology. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Bill in Maryland. Hey there. West Coast Bill. Not in Maryland. Good morning. Yeah, I'm not in Maryland. Maryland's nice, though. Well, it's kind of great this morning, but yeah. And uh, Sonia in Utah. <laughs> Hello. Like I mentioned, our special guest today is Louis Bork. Louis, hi. Hello. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience um, so they know who we're talking to? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm um, a researcher and assistant professor in... Uh, at the University of Leiden in the Faculty of Archaeology. I'm basically a visiting assistant professor here. Um, but I've spent the last 15 years uh, working in the in the U.S. and the American Southwest primarily. And um, prior to going to grad school, I worked for the federal government as an archaeologist. And then during grad school, I worked as a contract archaeologist before starting to work at a, a, a research and outreach nonprofit called Archaeology Southwest while I was working on my degree. And after getting my degree, then uh, I've been uh, over here in, in the Netherlands. And and the reason we asked you on, on, on to this show is because you had recently uh, published an article uh, entitled Constructing the Future History, Prefiguration as Historical Epistemology and the Chronopolitics of Archaeology. I really like the word chronopolitics, so we had to get <laughs> you on. Yeah, yeah. Could, could you outline uh, briefly uh, what this article is about? Yeah, I can. And I mean, the, the title obviously is, I don't want to say it's jargony, but it's definitely technical words for people in, in very specific sectors, I guess. But it's trying to pull together historical theory from radically different areas and tie them together through archaeology. So I'm looking at uh, the chronopolitics ideas as coming from uh, researchers in historical geographies and uh, prefiguration is coming out of uh, activist praxis in, in like the last 20 years, uh, but really kind of uh, laid out about 100 years or so ago. And that's uh, kind of this competing idea about how you can actually institute change in, in social systems and whether you can, uh, you know, whether the ends justify the means versus whether the, the, the uh, means create the ends. It's kind of this coupling or decoupling of uh, results from your from your actions. And uh, the whole thing is actually just kind of curious about, um, I'm, I was curious about what types of uh, histories we're going to have to draw on when we start to think about uh, potentials for organizing uh, social governments or social institutions outside of the contemporary neoliberal or capitalist states. Obviously, uh, a huge chunk of that archive is going to be coming from the archaeological record and the historical record and as archaeologists, most of what we're preserving is, is through a lot of these preservation management decisions. And so uh, having sat and given public talks and just kind of had general conversations with people about uh, sites that they found important in, in the American Southwest, which is where my primary focus is, uh, became more and more apparent 
that a lot of the areas people are, are highly interested in are ones that are more traditionally organized in a, in a more uh, vertical fashion, similar to, to contemporary states or more hierarchical fashion. So Chaco Canyon is obviously a really good example of that. Uh, Mesa Verde during the 1200s and 1300s. Uh, the Hoacom period from about 1200 to 1450. All these periods end up with a lot of researchers working on them because they have, uh, I and other people have argued, uh, because they just look a lot more similar to our current uh, form of, of governance, I guess. And so sure. if uh, the idea was kind of that, if if we're sort of, highlighting uh, what we already are practicing, we're, we're going to start running out of uh, alternative ideas if we think of the archaeological record as a, a kind of a radical archive or an archive of alternative uh, uh, governance practices. And, and so I was coming at this from a more critical perspective using a lot of uh, theory from uh, uh, anarchist uh, practice, I guess, and methodology and, and indigenous critiques of of, uh, of colonial uh, archaeologists. And so the idea here, especially with uh, the anarchist stuff, is uh, anarchist theories, it's it's really, I mean, it has a very vibrant community. A lot of it's actually called post-anarchism now because uh, they don't always uh, use the term anymore because everyone's so afraid of the term because it has uh, connotations of negative connotations where people think you're just talking about chaos if they don't understand it. Um, or they think you're going to blow up a, a, a government building <laughs> as as well. So there's uh, there's negatives on, on that side. But the, the longstanding idea behind it is how people can organize and uh, specifically organize a just society uh, without any formal uh, rulers. So if you look at the kind of traditionally, uh, the traditional anarchist symbol, like the, the A crossing over the O, that's actually from the 1700s. And it was uh, uh, done so that people would stop thinking of, uh, you know, a, a rulerless society as unordered and chaotic. So that O actually stands for order. And then the, the A obviously is mm. anarchy or without rulers. So really that symbol is, is, is uh, standing in for order without rulers. Okay, so that's the, that's the broad uh, uh, focus. That's where I started from kind of trying to look at this more critical uh, perspective on on uh, UNESCO heritage management decisions, at least, and I, I knew it would be problematic uh, in terms of you know us having a, uh, us as archaeologists and heritage management professionals having a uh, focus more on uh, these sort of state like institutions, and, and I just didn't realize quite how bad it would be until I kind of tallied all the UNESCO cultural heritage sites up, and I think in total for uh, North America. Uh, so, you know, Canada, U.S., uh, Mexico, and then I, I combined all the Caribbean countries as well that have uh, UNESCO sites. I think in total, 90% are hierarchically organized, so vertically organized, and 10% uh, of those are, are more uh, horizontally or, or uh, organized more flatly, which is really kind of the inverse of, of uh, what our political organization has looked like in, in um, you know, history of the Americas. It's more... 10% of the time has been vertically organized versus uh, horizontally organized. So the, the concern was sure. that we're erasing these uh, potential non-state, more uh, just organizational practices through our, our heritage management decisions. I, I, I kind of want to do a counterpoint that 
part of the reason we're really interested in those later, more complex societies, and and I'm more familiar from the you know, like the Midwest uh, with the Mississippi and stuff, it is you know part of that is because it's like the art, the material density of, of these sites is, is you know way larger than what you're dealing with um, before that, and and so. I don't know that it's so much as like, yes, they're hierarchical and so are we and we're going to do it so much as like, look at all this stuff and, and look at this art and the complexity of like, you know, like the, the variety of ceramics and, and, and all of this. There's a lot more material culture to kind of key in on. Um, and then also to get to the earlier non-hierarchical stuff, you're going to have to plow through it. So, you know, and who wants to do that, right? Like, you know, like don't necessarily want to dig through existing, you know, components uh, to get to earlier ones. So, you know, I, I wonder if it's not actually, you know, the nature of the material culture rather than the social hierarchy of, of um, the groups who are studying. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if, if I can respond to that, that's. Oh, yeah. I think, uh, you know, that's sort of the uh, kind of implicit ideas that I've, I've been trying to push back against, because I think that's kind of how people have just assumed that we've been moving forward with this. Oh, these hierarchical societies often build these really large scale uh, structures. And, and so they're just more visibly prominent. So let's, that's why we end up looking at those. Uh, the reality is, though, um, we have just as often ignored these large scale structures from non-hierarchical societies as, as well, or uh, what we end up doing is uh, uh, interpreting them automatically as uh, hierarchical societies. And that's the uh, story that we end up telling to visitors when they come to these sites. So Poverty Point, of course, being a, a really good example of that until fairly recently. But, and then the density thing becomes, uh, it, it certainly is an, an issue in terms of uh, you end up with uh, higher levels of population density sometimes in uh, hierarchically organized sites. And part of this has to do with state form formation processes and uh, simplification of organizational uh, practices that go along with population densities. And so you have all this with Jim Scott and uh, Norm Yaffe have, have called legibility, uh, where you end up uh, as you're getting these um, massive levels of people coming together, you have all of these uh, practices that funnel organization into fewer and fewer people because it's easier uh, to manage large-scale uh, groups that way. So uh, in some ways, we have to decouple this idea of easiness uh, from uh, betterness, I guess, justness. Uh, that's, that's a different story um, or a different topic. But in terms of density, uh, like, you know, when we look at uh, archaeology in the American Southwest, and we're looking at density of archaeological sites that have uh, primarily more hierarchical uh, organizational practices like Chaco and Chaco and related sites uh, versus ones that are uh, more horizontally organized. We actually have a higher level, higher density of, of these uh, horizontally organized sites uh, than we do with Chacoan uh, sites or, or sites up in the Mesa Verde region. So I work in the Guyana region, which is if you think of Chaco Canyon and uh, Santa Fe, the Rio Grande, and uh, Mesa Verde as uh, three points on a triangle. And uh, the area I work at is basically right in the middle there. And we've got something around uh, 2,500 structural sites in this area. And it's not a particularly huge 
area, um, but it's it's just kind of been erased in the archaeological uh, research record because it, it isn't that they're not building uh, massive structures. They're certainly not building Pueblo Benitos out there, but mm-hmm. they're definitely building things dramatically larger in terms of uh, pit structures and with a lot more effort put into them than you see in the Mesa Verde region, uh, where you have far more researchers uh, working on it. So. So there is, uh, of course, some sort of uh, uh, bias in terms of preservation that's happening because of visibility. Uh, but then also you get down to like the Hoakam area where, you, you know, a lot of these massive, uh, and Bill knows this quite well too, a lot of these massive public works projects that are happening down there, excluding the these large scale uh, platform mounds that they get, which come up during a much more hierarchical period, are actually built in, during uh, periods that are, kind of decoupled from hierarchy, a lot more horizontal decision-making is happening. And so they have these huge irrigation uh, canals put together alongside a lot of uh, uh, ball courts that are dug. So there, these, you guys, I mean, those are completely valid concerns and there is some sort of reality uh, to that. But the other side of this is, is even if it is just simply that these things are easier to see, that doesn't really negate the concern that alternative uh, organizational practices are getting not preserved as effectively. Okay. Bill uh, typed up, since um, he's having trouble communicating with you, uh, that the U.S. is not part of, um, part of the UNESCO Heritage Convention, and that uh, but these are like state groups that are doing the, rec- uh, the recommendations of these sites to the heritage list. So I don't know if you have a response. Yeah, I mean, when I started this, it was before we'd pulled out of you know, UNESCO. Obviously, the peer review practice uh, doesn't move as quickly as politics. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the primary response to that. I mean, the reality is this is just a, a, a test study to see if there are problematic uh, issues with how we're actually making heritage management decisions, whether we're taking into to account the full scope of of uh, organizational practices like this. and And what I argue in the article is that uh, UNESCO is, you know, probably a, a poor case study because it is incredibly top down already. So we're going to take a break. When you come back, uh, Bill is going to ask Lewis a question about Australia, and we will tie it all into current CRM practice. See you after the break. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We, we were having some technical issues in that first segment, and hopefully we've got them all worked out. Um, we're going to start up with uh, West Coast Bill. I had a question for Lewis. Yeah, Lewis, uh, in the article, uh, you know, using the UNESCO thing, as you mentioned, is probably not going to show indigenous participation because it is such a top down thing with the state's parties kind of controlling the whole uh, nomination process and everything. Um, But 
I do know that, you know, it's a, a system that's fraught with problems. However, there I've known of some successes, at least limited successes, specifically with um, indigenous individuals in Australia and their um, campaign to change the way that the uh, tourism of Uluru or Ayers Rock influences their heritage properties. So I guess in the end, are you in the next step to try and find some kind of way to capture indigenous participation? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so one of the things that I was interested in, in looking at was how a lot of these uh, concerns that are brought up by indigenous groups about, you know, what sites and what sites those uh, uh, the political practices that might correspond to those sites might be captured uh, through other uh, non-cultural uh, uh, heritage uh, management protection uh, processes like the, the natural uh, sites through, through UNESCO, like what sort of sites are captured during those? And because uh, the Grand Canyon's one of these big ones, right? That has a, a ton of uh, archeological sites uh, collected within it or, or captured within this uh, UNESCO uh, registration. The concern that I had for that, and this is a concern that is shared by a lot of uh, native colleagues of mine, is that the very process of uh, incorporating these things into uh, these natural uh, landscapes instead of cultural landscapes sort of delegitimizes a lot of the uh, extremely powerful effort towards um, more equitable and non-hierarchical uh, political practices that are embedded within those uh, uh, time periods. So the you know that's that's a long uh, a way of saying yeah that's that should be the next step. Part of what I want to do with some of the fieldwork I'm doing is to start a broader conversation about what that might look like. And I think in the U.S., though, it's already uh, happening in terms of all, all the mobilizations that's, that have occurred, you know, not just with uh, uh, no dapple, but but in the southwest, more particularly around Bears Ears. Uh, there's been a huge amount of uh, local and, and uh, indigenous uh, participation and formulating and, and defining uh, boundaries and, you know, what types of sites are important to uh, to maintain. And so that sort of landscape based uh, scale is, is uh, you know, coupled with a focus on, on cultural landscapes instead of just accidentally capturing these things in natural landscapes, you know, quote unquote, natural landscapes is really, I think, uh, a, a powerful way that we can move forward with this. So to try to pivot this a little to sort of using sort of these ideas and the interpretation of sites and maybe eventually to the uh, how, how it fits in within the, the uh, world of CRM. I'm going to use mostly a historical example because that's sort of my wheelhouse uh, on things. But I was thinking in terms of the idea of like horizontal groupings within vertical societies, uh, specifically uh, a lot of what I deal with here is in the East Coast of the United States. And I spent a lot of time uh, looking at uh, enslaved communities within sort of antebellum periods in the United States. So, well, so the enslaved community itself could be seen as a horizontal uh, society since uh, the, the, there are no hierarchies within within that. But they're operating within a vertical society. So how do you identify and, and, and you know, work through that? That's something that's sort of been going on for the last 20, 30 years of, of sort of how do you see the horizontal within a vertical society? So it's a, so not even just a broader society that's uh, spread out. Um, overall is horizontal, but how do you look at it when it's embedded within an existing uh, hierarchical vertical society? And I've also known some of the work um, done by um, Michael Roller from University of Maryland, um, looking at uh, miners up in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and sort of looking at like these embedded 
horizontal communities and possibly forced to be horizontal because of the pressures um, of, of the uh, vertical society. And how do you find them? That's because that's been a very hot topic in, in the world of CRM uh, in the past um, 10 years, maybe 20 years of identifying sort of these more marginalized communities more uh, than we had initially in the past. Uh, no longer are, you know, tours and discussions of uh, plantations just about um, look at the big house and, and look at this founding father who did all these great things. We are now finally using our lens to focus on, on the enslaved who build and worked and, and so forth. So I'm uh, thinking how the ideas of uh, chronotime and, and other things can sort of work uh, while and to help interpret uh, sites. I mean, anyone else can can jump here in here to answer answer that as well, because I, I I certainly don't have uh, even remotely have all all the answers. This is more a, a small case study to say, uh, you know, hey, we need to be more aware of a lot of these decisions we're making because there's all these kind of implicit biases that that are are built or that are kind of drilled into us as we grow up in in a state and, and a capitalist society, but. I think, uh, I mean, the concerns you have are, are definitely shared um, in, in non-historical contexts as well. I mean, that's that's really kind of just replicating this idea of, you know, let's let's preserve Pueblo Benito uh, and and we'll give all the visitors a huge talk based on you know the people who lived here, and we'll just ignore all the all the small sites within Chaco Canyon. Uh, where people, you know, have food deficiencies and, and we're clearly at, you know, decoupled from the centers of power that you're seeing on the north side of the canyon. So uh, it's not happening in that particular UNESCO environment, um, uh, but it, it, I think, is starting to happen in the Mesa Verde area uh, more more generally. But it's a, it's a complicated uh, balance, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is something, you know, trying to see see these other people within there, especially in communities. I mean, they sort of move it into the world of, of CRM. You have sort of the predominant national government uh, and state governments with their, their sort of their hierarchies and, and trying to look for others, whether they're the indigenous or, or others in there is is a struggle at times. Um, and I think it's something we, we deal with on, on a regular basis. But one other thing I noticed uh, reading over your paper was the uh, the idea and the reminder of uh, archaeology itself being a political act, being an act of uh, creating history rather than sort of rediscovery. Like we, we, we uncover the things of the past to tell a story to the present to create what the future understands as the past. Um, so I, I like that a lot. And I don't know if you want to maybe explain a little more about that idea. Yeah, I mean, I, there's... Other people on here as well that I I, I think are, are uh, just as able to uh, to answer this. So you know, please please do jump in. But it's uh, for me, it's always been a big concern. A, a few of the places that I've worked at, uh, there's there's uh, and you know, having worked in the land management uh, sector for for a while as well, there's clearly a decoupling from uh, what we're actually. Uh, doing as we're preserving these sites or as we're practicing archaeology from from how that may affect the the contemporary world you know it seems like there's some sort of a history that's that's involved with with archaeology i actually got chastised on a southwestern archaeology listserv when i was in grad school because i i uh i i congratulated skateboards for entering the archaeological record as a uh as a joke about the 50 year 
rule. And uh, uh, I had a whole bunch of Southwestern archaeologists jump down my throat uh, for derailing the, the listserv away from from Southwestern archaeology. And, and so it, it goes to show how decoupled a lot of archaeologists can, <laughs> can be from uh, uh, this sort of idea that, you know, what we're really doing is studying uh, the material world and our interactions with that material world are are completely uh, political and then how we use that material world to to write these histories is is completely politic political so this the idea of this paper is to just get people aware of their political orientation or what the political ramifications are i think for the the decisions they're making i mean one of the concerns i had that uh, that i haven't gotten to and this might go back to a question bill was asking earlier is is uh you know how do we actually go about uh, trying to implement this. And I don't, uh, you know, I have no answers for that in, in a uh, federal or, or state or uh, uh, context, especially ones where, uh, you know, you've got a, a right away for the I-10 corridor or something like that. There's not a whole lot of decisions that you can make in terms of uh, where you're working at or what you're working on. You know, having worked in the, you know, the quote unquote preservation or conservation nonprofit sector for quite a while, I did see a really uh, concerning pattern where people were just making conservation or preservation decisions about archaeological sites simply based on the uh, the presence or the availability or, or the the ability to actually purchase uh, that site or put it into a conservation easement. And so, one of the things I think that needs to happen is for a lot of these uh, nonprofits to to take a broader perspective and and to look at like what this kind of body of, of uh, archaeology, uh, of the archaeological record that they've uh, preserved or constructed, you know, what it's actually preserving and, and start to look at whether they're, they're, they're skewing in one direction or another. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a political organization of these groups. It could be um, anything from, oh, we've got too many uh, autumn, ancestral autumn sites. We should, you know, focus on getting some Apache sites preserved. Yeah, I think that one of the big things that I've seen that can kind of get around this uh, is not really a metrics of sorts, but the kind of willingness among certain communities to just go ahead and take control of their own historic preservation, whether that's using the National Historic Preservation Act or using UNESCO or whatever, and then um, managing it in their own way. And the example that I think of closely is the the stuff that I've seen going on in St. Croix and in the Virgin Islands, which is an area that does, I mean, it, if you think that Puerto Rico's treatment by the United States is bad, you should see what's going on in the Virgin Islands. They're even further removed away from, you know, control of their own administration and area. But there's a lot of folks who are doing just kind of cultural rehabilitation and reclaiming their own uh, Afro-Caribbean roots. And sometimes that involves, uh, you know, rehabilitating buildings. Sometimes it even re- involves taking out long-term leases and rehabilitating historical buildings that they don't even own. Sometimes it involves, you know, inviting scholars to give talks and to come and survey sites. And then other times it involves, you know, having food festivals. So, you know, most of the people there are African-American uh, and they're just reclaiming their own heritage because they realize that they're taught the same common core standards that the U.S. mainland forces on students and that that wasn't cutting it. And so they've got their own alternative form of knowledge that is, you know, just that's what they teach their people. So when you talk to them about historic preservation or whatever, they're kind of just thinking like, oh, well, you know, yeah, of course we would fix that building because we could. And then sometimes we're just going to lose buildings. 
And of course they would have a tour that goes to the big house and only shows that. But, you know, we have our own tour for our own people and our own children. And we tell them the truth about, you know, local knowledge and who we are. And so that doesn't, there's not really a way to quantify it because us coming from, you know, the state's parties or the state or the organized realm, our data can't really capture that kind of stuff, but it's actually happening. That's a, that's a really good point, Bill. And, you know, I'm kind of in a similar position to you where I've been um, moving into uh, Caribbean archaeology in the last uh, couple of years as well. And I'm over uh, a bit more um, strongly within the, the uh, you know, on Hispaniola and, and Haiti and, and Dominican Republic. And uh, what what you just described is replicated pretty pretty strongly there as well. So, I mean, to be honest with you, the interactions we've had with the, a lot of the communities and and uh, uh, some of the indigenous uh, communities I've, I've uh, um, leaders that I've talked to, like uh, with the Kalinago down in the southern part of the archipelago in the uh, in the Lesser Antilles, it's it it made me feel like there's a better hope for uh, there being more bottom orient bottom up oriented discussions happening. Uh, when some of these um, uh, heritage groups come to town, uh, so to speak, and and then when I coded everything, I was a little, I was a bit disappointed. In fact, I think it's uh, only one site in in the Caribbean actually ended up being more more horizontally uh, organized. I was expecting there to be a lot more uh, focus on, uh, you know, uh, some of the indigenous communities prior to. To contact and there's almost nothing of those unless they accidentally fall within more more colonial structures and uh and then maroon communities and, and garifuna communities and things like that and uh, that's just not sadly that's not preserved but it's clear that with the groups that we've talked to that that's what they uh, are interested in that's what they want to see preserved so it also reminds me of some of the things that i've heard you know uh, working with native groups that you know you get the permission to know things based on I guess how down for the cause you are or whether they have the rights to share certain things. Right. But the idea that, you know, Indians are gone or that native culture was destroyed or something like that, that's not in any way close to true because if you are an ally and you are someone who they actually share some of this knowledge with, you'll see that they've maintained thousands of years worth of knowledge, even though it almost got destroyed through genocide and, you know, epidemic diseases. So uh, that knowledge doesn't actually go into site preservation a lot of times because we're the ones who are the agents of the destruction. <laughs> so they're not going to share a lot of that stuff with us. And I think in the Caribbean and you know, and in black communities, there's definitely local knowledge too that a lot of times doesn't get shared because of who we are. When we come in and we try to do preservation programs or something like that, a lot of times they don't share their techniques with how they've survived because you know, some of that stuff, especially in the black community, is not exactly in the, you know, law book or whatever as ethical ways that you would survive or, or basically legal things, strategies you'd use to survive. So, you know, they're not going to tell us any of that stuff because that doesn't fit the, you know, dominant paradigm. So I don't know if there is a way for our, our data collection system to ever really get to that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the the what I, I don't really get into uh, uh, much problem solving in that article. Sadly, I wish I could have actually extended more into that aspect of it because I'm uncomfortable highlighting problems uh, without at least potential solutions. But the, the little bit of potential solutions I did bring up is is uh, to actually try to 
you know, focus on decoupling some of these decisions from uh, government and state, you know, city, county practices. And, and that's why I think the next step is to start looking at not just uh, tribal governments, because sometimes, you know, as like uh, folks like Glenn Coulthard up in uh, uh, Canada has have argued the you know, the structures that of, of, of political power for interacting with the state are kind of replicating a lot of these colonial processes within some of the tribal groups as well. But but NGOs within the tribe or and, and you know, non-tribal NGOs as as well, see if they can start making uh, more uh, informed and, and uh, comprehensive uh, preservation management decisions. Not that tribal groups aren't making informed management decisions, but a lot of these NGOs, again, are just doing it. Instead of taking all the data points together, they're just kind of going with what they run across. Well, cool. I think this is a good breaking point. So we're going to jump to the break and then uh, come back for the third segment and talk about potential solutions for how we work with this. Back in a bit. Hey, podcast fans and digital archaeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. Check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. Now back to the show. Welcome back. We were talking with Louis Bork about uh, anarchy and various aspects in CRM, and Sonia had the next question. Sonia. Yeah. So, uh, Louis, as I was reading through your through your article, um, all I could think of was, all right, great. How am I going to apply chronopolitics in the modern world, and specifically, like with regard to how we practice archaeology with more recent artifacts. And when I say recent, I mean things that are just coming into period. And a lot of states in the East say, mm, if it's 1950, um, or if it was if it was deposited or made after 1950, we don't care. So they don't have this strict 50-year rule that we seem to have more in the West. And there are states that are, are starting to go, okay, you know what? There are so many pop-top cans along um, transportation routes that were created in the or, or constructed during the like the 1960s and early 1970s. We've got so much of this stuff. How are we going to manage it? Are we going to have to point plot every single pop top can or um, you know whatever uh, we have out there? Um, and every single um, I don't know drainage ditch along the highway or every single um, light pole on the street? Um, or can we assume that those items are, yes, part of the historic context, but not necessary to, to record? Um, how, how does that affect how we practice archaeology in the field and make recommendations to our clients? And, I mean, if we think about it as, as contractors, our job is to do a is to do um, do work for our clients to assist them in fulfilling their obligations under under federal and state law. 
right? But this 50-year rule isn't always um, a thing all over or consistently across the United States. So how are we going to deal with all of this extra new stuff? And how does, um, oh, like how does this affect this um, difference between the means creating the end and the ends justifying the means? I mean, in, in my view of, of, uh, of this, at least in terms of, of what you're, ac- you're asking, is, is I, I think it's related to this uh, concern with us kind of coming up to the, uh, or having already passed the, the mass manufacturing uh, period, and now we're hitting like the, uh, you know, the uh, onset of plastic and, and the uh, uh, being recorded through the 50-year rule and, and everything as well. And, and you know, the, the cheap answer for me, I think, is, is that we can start making uh, decisions as heritage professionals that are, are more class conscious in, in some ways and uh, conscious of other groups that have been you know, marginalized from, from the historical record. And many of which uh, are actually popping up, so to speak, in, in, uh, in, along these you know, travel corridors because uh, so many of them are, are uh, so, so many of these groups are, use mobility as a kind of survival mechanism. I mean, that's not to say that all of uh, mobile groups that you're going to find during these periods are, are many of them are upper middle class and doing quite well as also. But so I think one thing that you can do is, is you know, obviously you have uh, structures, uh, legal structures that you're working uh, within and ethically you can't breach those legal structures. That's completely that's completely correct. But because um, and, and uh, because one of the things that you're always uh, having to be conscious of is uh, you know, sort of the, these uh, restrictions, uh, you're also having to be conscious, I think, and, and what I'm trying to argue, of the narrative that you're producing through uh, arguing for preservation of these these sites. And, and so there's a, one of my one of my favorite uh, activists and, and theorists is this woman, Lucy Parsons. And she was one of the founders of the Industrial Workers of the World. Uh, she's uh, a Black Indigenous woman, uh, from what we can tell, she escaped slavery in Mexico and, and uh, got into the United States. She ended up marrying a man who was a soldier in the Confederate Army. And uh, the two of them became uh, some of the founders for the industrial workers of the world. So I'm, I'm not even, I'd, I'd love to know more about that story, about how those two got together and became a radical left activists together. One of the things that uh, her and this group have always advocated for is not even necessarily these, you know, explosive, massive uh, revolutions, but to always, uh, and this is what prefiguration is essentially, is to always do uh, what you would like to see in the future and in, in the present. So uh, just practice what you're uh, trying to, to attain. So if the concern is that there are certain uh, archaeological objects that are often ignored uh, by people, but may be indicative of, of groups or, you know, however you might define them, ethnic or or class-based groups that are um, often being erased, then, then I think we have space uh, within these legal restrictions to actually start making decisions about what we can and, and uh, can consider to be uh, preservational or you know, worthy of preservation. I think one thing that, that we are trying to consider as professionals is, is this bias that we have toward the kind of the, the, um, the cool Uh, We see a lot of like the elite status um, people represented uh, overwhelmingly in the archaeological record, but we see the common 
common man, I'm just going to put that in quotes there, the common man is, is grossly underrepresentative in the archaeological, when I say archaeological record, I mean what's documented by archaeologists. The problem is that the elite status of folks that we are overrepresenting in our cultural histories, in our discussions about life and, and culture, um, is, is actually a very, very tiny part of culture in general. And then what we are missing are these, these things that the common, the common man, the common person, but their, their debris, if, if, if you'll forgive the, the term, um, their debris is, is huge. So balancing that, uh, that, uh, that debris that we are recording from the common person or the common man versus what we are seeing, the, the, the more ornate, the more, um, uh, the more interesting, what we find more interesting, I think, uh, chronopolitically or even politically, um, we're, we're having a hard time balancing that. Why investigate a tiny little lithic scatter versus going and checking out, you know, Chaco Canyon? Does, does that make sense? Um, and how are we going to balance that type of, of research? Um, if we're looking, if, we're, if I just take my example of uh, pop-top cans, which are now in period, and we record all of the pop-top cans along highway, you know, I-70, I-15, I-25, if we're talking about Colorado and Utah area, which I'm quite familiar with, um, we'll get thousands upon thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands, you know, possibly even more than that of these artifacts. But when we find these small little, um, smaller little sites that, that have maybe residential areas, we, we become much more interested in that because we feel that it's more representative or it's more interesting. So are we biased by politics? Are we bi biased by interest? Is our politics and interests kind of, they kind of commingle. And how do we balance that hugely overrepresented class, meaning the common man, in the, in the dirt versus what we see very small amounts of the elite status in the dirt? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's what I'm struggling with as well. We're talking thousands upon thousands of things versus, versus very few things. So yeah. we're balancing. But if we're made to record things that are within the 50-year rule, we're going to be dealing with a lot more than we can, can we reasonably manage. Yeah, I mean, no, I 100% agree with you. I mean, what, what you're saying is, I think what you're saying, one of the outcomes that could be from uh, focusing too much on, on these non-elite status items is that we're just going to get swapped with with data and and, uh, and conservation. And it also adds a considerable amount of cost to our clients. Yeah. So are we essentially, by, by balancing things out, recording them in the field, in the dirt, um, are we actually increasing costs to our clients who then go back to government and say, archaeology's become outrageously expensive. <laughs> and then the government says, well, archaeology is ridiculous, and then gets rid of or, or uh, downgrade certain laws, in which case then we go back to your article where we're talking about politics. Yeah. I, I, I maintain that, and, and 
I, I have all, for a very long time maintained that the, the clients who don't actually have an interest in historic preservation or uh, cultural resources will always complain that it's too expensive and takes too long, regardless of how um, expensive or how much time it takes. And, and so it doesn't matter. Like, you know, we, we could second guess ourselves and try to be like, well, like, like we don't want to be too expensive. We don't want to take too much time because, you know, they'll just complain. They're already complaining. They'll still complain. It doesn't matter. Like we, we should be focused on what it takes to do the job. Um, you know, I mean, I, I understand like there, there is a reasonable amount of time to, to do stuff and, and for the ubiquity of the pop top can horizon. Yeah. You know, it's like may, maybe we still need to consider these as sites or record them as sites um, if for no other reason than to get them off the books. But we, you know, maybe we need to consider kind of a shorthand sort of acknowledging their existence and then moving on. And, and you know, it's like, yep, uh, can scatter, quickly record it, you know, rough number of cans, done. And 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 then have it, you know, being essentially a CADEX sort of thing where it's like, it, it doesn't have to be for, more formally evaluated against uh, uh, the National Register criteria. Uh, Bill? Yeah, I think re realistically, I mean, there's, it sounds like there's really like two problems here. One's sort of a theoretical, one's a, one's a uh, methodological uh, problem. One, the, the methodological problem is, you know, do, do we treat these, uh, do we have to treat all artifacts equally? Uh, or do we do we develop different methods for different types of artifacts? Like, do you need to count every pot, uh, you know, pull tab? Or can you just take a picture of pull tabs and go, that's somewhere between 100 and 1,000 and and move on with your, your day and your life? Um, as opposed to if you're, you're finding sort of, you know, intact ceramic pieces, uh, which then could, you know, or, or sort of lithics of some kind, which can be, you know, studied a little more in a little more detail and, and so forth. So that's sort of the methodological problem uh, with this one. I think the other, the theor theoretical problem, though, I think is one of what are we doing this for? And who are we doing this for? I mean, a CRM archaeologist, uh, in the end, we are sort of pseudo agents of government agencies. We are out there because a government, whether a federal or state or other local government, um, has put a law into the books that says cultural resources are, are important and they must be evaluated before X, Y, Z, whether it's a permit, development, or, or whatever else is, is, is occurring there. Um, so we, we, we occupy that space as that. And we should never forget that in that way, we are an agent of sort of the hierarchical power that exists today uh, in, in this world. Um, but we also sort of occupy an liminal state where we also are representing the artifacts and the people, more importantly, uh, the people who created and used and disposed of those artifacts in the past. So we sort of take this weird liminal space where we, we have to negotiate uh, and as best we can, the story of those people in the past, whether today we would call them significant or not, there are still people who lived, breathed, died, and, and, and disposed of these artifacts here uh, with the goals of the government of telling good nationalistic stories to create good workers and soldiers for the future. Um, so, you know, we have to remember wh where we stand in that. So. Well, one of this one of the things that um, this article had me thinking about, and 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 I'll confess that I've been thinking about it a lot in, in general. Um, you know, even prior to reading this, is the notion that archaeology is 
um, you know, like the, the point of archaeology is to give a voice to the voiceless of, of the past, right? Like we're, we're not necessarily trying to look at like the big important um, historical figures, uh, particularly um, in, in more recent his, historical, historically documented times where, you know, like um, the, the rich and powerful already have their stories out there. And, and we're trying to uh, look at, like I say, uh, provide the voice for the voiceless. It, it, it strikes me that that in turn is for us, like that puts us like in a massive position of empowerment for ourselves, where it's like we get to dictate, you know, who's the voiceless and, and what, what exactly is their voice, right? We're kind of maintaining our own hierarchical structure in, in, in how we, you know, what the stories we tell. And that is definitely a trap. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. That's a big trap. They, and this is, you know, this is where I think we have to first, you know, we need to get to the point where we're being aware of uh, how we're making these significance judgments, uh, because we're clearly, you know, there, there are, you know, contemporary biases that we apply to the, to the archaeological record. And then the next step is then, you know, thinking about how we can counteract those and and so this is kind of like what Bill was talking about in in, uh, in the Caribbean and and how uh, southwestern archaeology in a lot of ways has been moving forward. And I keep bringing southwestern up because that's my primary uh, background. But uh, you know, and this is stepping outside of archaeologists as as always leading this conversation, or at least all of us getting uh, comfortable with there being uh, voices at the table that have as much power as us, if not more power, than us to start making this discussion or making these determinations. Well, cool. Anybody have any final thoughts? No, I just, I think that this has been a great discussion. And I think it's something that we should consider thinking a little bit more about in the future, especially as we move into um, application um, of, of how we consider our, our own biases, how, how uh, politics plays in archaeology, and um, what we do in the dirt. So thank you very much for coming on, Lewis. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. This was fun. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also for, to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. See you later. See ya. Bye. Bye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.